bow for a word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we come. God, we thank you for what an awesome God you are. God, we pray that as we open your word, we look at how you revealed who you are. We look at who you've called us to be, what you've called us to do. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that you would help us to to understand, to apply, to walk in accordance with what your word has taught us, told us. Lord, we are grateful to you for more than we can even begin to express but mostly just for the fact that such an awesome, almighty, powerful God loves us and wants a relationship with us. Help us truly to revel in that, to see the power of that. Use this time for your glory, for your kingdom, for your purposes. In Christ's name I pray. So we've been moving through the subject of the life to come, what happens after we die, what is heaven like, those sorts of things. We started by looking at the fact that Scripture is our only resource, that these other so-called revelations that people are sometimes putting forward, sometimes arguing for, are not uh, really... Uh, something we can count on, something we can base our belief system on. We then move to the doctrine of, of sin and accountability and how that affects our role, our relationship to children and those who are not of the mental capacity to understand or to perceive the responsibility before God. And we said that God does not condemn those, that they, in fact, stand before Him uh, still through the blood of Jesus, but uh also from, from the lens of a lack of accountability for what they've done, but that once uh, people reach uh, an understanding and are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Then last week we talked about the intermediate state. We talked about the nature of heaven, paradise, and how um, the, the emphasis there has to be on the person of Jesus, that that's the real focus. But that's what Scripture calls us to, a, a relationship, a, a connection with Him, and that what we're longing for is ultimately not heaven per se, it's the resurrection, what God will do when Christ returns. That's our blessed hope. That's the nature of where our focus should be. And this week I want to move into that status, that, that situation of what eternity will look like, what what it'll be like to, to dwell in that environment. And we're going to spend this week and next week looking at that subject. Next week we're going to look more at the life itself. What exactly does eternity look like in terms of how we, we, we will be spending our time? What will we know? What will we understand? What will we encounter in that environment? But this week I want to look and kind of prepare the way for that by looking at the subject of rewards. 
what is the biblical basis, what is the biblical teaching on the subject of rewards? There's a story that's sometimes told in connection with this issue. It's a story of a, about a preacher and a New York City cab driver who died on the same day. And when they got to heaven, uh, they were greeted by Peter, and the, the preacher uh, was given his reward. He says, there's your reward, and it was just a small cottage. And the cab driver was also given his reward at the same time, and it was this large, magnificent mansion. The preacher was just a little bit disturbed by this, a little bit disappointed by this. He he turned to Peter and he says, "Why, why am I given such a small cabin, small cottage, while the cab driver is receiving this massive mansion?" And Peter said, "Well, it, it's really quite simple. When you preached, everybody slept, but when he drove, everybody prayed." Now, there's, based upon what we've already said, there's already a lot of problems with that story. We, we talked about the, the whole issue of the, the mansion cottage idea last week, that, that that's really not what the word mansion means. We talked about what that is alluding to and, and what that's referring to there in Jesus' words in John. And we don't really have to deal all that much with Peter as, as heaven's gatekeeper. That's drawn from Matthew 16, 19, but it's really more of a traditional approach. It doesn't really have any basis in Scripture in terms of the image of Jesus or of Peter holding the, the keys to heaven, not talking about him being heaven's gatekeeper. But what I want to focus on today is the gist of the story, the reception and rewards. What will happen on that day? What will happen when we stand before God in judgment as Christians? Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, we've spent a lot of time in the book of Corinthians as we've done this series because it is a book, again, where Paul is tackling the whole idea, the whole issue of resurrection. He's trying to get these people to understand the connection between the life that will come and the life that they live now. What is the relationship between those two realities? What, what is taking place now that affects then, and what is our expectation then that affects what we do now. And in this particular section of his letter to the church at Corinth, he's dealing with the issue of divisiveness. The church at Corinth was one of the most divided, one of the most problematic churches that Paul interacted with uh, that we have letters from. There's all sorts of notifications and, and information in his letters about how they were they were weighing themselves against each other. Well, I have this gift, so that makes me better than you. And those sorts of things were taking place in this church. And Paul is trying to, to tackle that issue, but he doesn't just tackle it in terms of their present situation. He doesn't just say love one another and, and hold each other in high regard and those sorts of things. He does say that, but he doesn't only say that. He also brings in the issue of eternity here in chapter 3. And his point is essentially that Christians must recognize, they must acknowledge their fundamental equality before God. That all of us are in a humble position, in need of a Savior, and all of us who have received that salvation, all of us who have received that mercy, should stand next to each other, not comparing ourselves to each other, but grateful for the gift of grace 
and love that God has given us. But he talks about our works. He talks about how they do impact eternity, what, what they're like there. And, and this is where we pick up in verse 10 of chapter 3. It says, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so the question that, that, that rises when you read this, and, and there are some other passages we'll look at as well, is, is Paul advocating what we would call a, a gradation of rewards? Is, is Paul, does the New Testament, anywhere advocating that, the, that there will be different levels of reward in heaven for Christians? Will we have different size dwelling places? Will we have different levels of reward there in eternity? And, and this passage is a, a, a passage that um, has been often used to argue for that because he says, if anyone's work that has built survives, they'll receive a reward. And some could read that. You could read that to say for every work that we receive that lasts, that is, that is of gold or uh, of silver is of that nature that will receive an additional reward for that. You can't read it that way. Some have taken this passage to to even be a defense of the doctrine of purgatory. We talked about that last week and how that's not a biblical expression. That's not something that you find in Scripture. It's not something that uh, is evident there. But those who argue for it will say that this passage perhaps alludes to it with this whole burning up idea. That that the stuff that was done that wasn't quite up to snuff will, will burn away and eventually you'll get to heaven. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's expressing, but some have used it. But I want to note here that most of us in this room, I think, based upon your responses last week and previous discussions so forth, most of us in this room would deny the doctrine of purgatory. We would say it's, it's not biblical. We, we don't see it. Most of us would say that's not present. But then we would pick up the idea of rewards and say that is present. And I would argue that there's really not a whole lot of difference between this idea of rewards and this idea of purgatory. Purgatory really, as it's often explained within Catholicism, is just a lesser heaven. It's not all that, it's not the greatness of it, but it's not hell either. And as we start to talk about rewards, I think in some ways that's what Protestants, what Baptists have done to kind of substitute for the idea of purgatory. Well, there are those who will have heaven, but just barely. And then there are those who will have heaven, and they'll really have a good heaven or a good eternity because of all the rewards they have. 
And I really believe that neither of those concepts are biblical. Let's look at what Paul's saying here. What is, the, what is it we can say for sure that Paul says in this passage? The first thing we can say that Paul says is that there will be a judgment day for Christians. Okay? He seems to suggest, he seems to distinguish between this judgment day for Christians and the judgment day that pertains to the sheep and the goats. That is, are you a believer or not? There seems to be, throughout Scripture, this distinguishing feature where you have the judgment of believer or not believer, in Christ, not in Christ. Those who are in Christ go on to reward. Those who are not in Christ go on to hell. That's, that's one judgment that's clearly outlined in Scripture. Some call this the great white throne judgment. Others have different names for it. But whatever you want to call it, that's what seems to be present. But there also seems to be this discussion of this judgment this response, this interaction that God has with believers themselves. And that's what Paul seems to be talking about here, where he talks about how Christians' works are evaluated. And so uh, it's not just here. You, you find this idea in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. You find this reference in Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. This seems to be something that the Bible kind of highlights here. And, and what Paul says about that judgment day is that our works, Christian works, believers' works, will either be revealed to be eternal or passive. Okay? He says God will look at the works we've done as believers, and he will say that work, that activity, that task was of eternal significance. That was something that will impact eternity. Others are works that are just passing. And he says that those that are passing, he, he, he suggests here that um, in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved. What is he talking about here when he talks about this loss? Well, there's two, two basic ways to understand it. One is that he's talking about the reward. He will lose a reward. He will not, he will not gain the reward that someone who's, whose activities um, would merit them. He'll lose that. I think a second approach is better. I think the loss that is experienced here is the work itself. That we will watch as the work that we've done or whatever, in that moment, in that moment of judgment, it is burned away. That our loss is the sense of connection to or value of that work itself. That that's what Paul has in mind here. Now, in some ways, the distinction is unimportant what it is exactly, but I think there really is a question of what is the relationship between our works and eternity. What does Scripture have to say about that for believers? And I would suggest, based upon my reading of Paul here and some of the other passages we're going to look at, that yes, there is a judgment for Christians right there at the beginning of our 
experience of eternity that evaluates our works, but that the idea of a reward or something growing out of that is something that is at that moment, not through eternity. In other words, we receive at that moment a reward of either seeing our work identified as eternal or seeing our work as temporal or something that's passing. And along with that, we receive the reward of God's acknowledgement of that. But that there is not, from a biblical standpoint, a gradation of our eternity. And why do I say that? Where do I get that idea from? Well, there's, there's two places that I think Scripture uh, kind of leads us in this way. And one has more to do with the logic of the discussion and one more with the actual content of the discussion. We're going to start with the logic. And this is, what I, this is what I want to argue in terms of the logic of gradation of rewards. If you and I are in heaven, in eternity, to be more precise, and your reward is greater than mine, would that not affect my appreciation and love and enjoyment of eternity? Because I would see what you're getting that I'm not. There would be some lacking on my part. There would be something in me that would say, this isn't as great as I hoped it would be, because look what they got. And from my understanding of eternity, it's all good. It's all good. Okay, we'll talk about, more about that next week, but that is the essence of how Scripture describes it. I can't understand the, uh, the idea logically of this concept of different approaches. Now, some might respond to that, well, yeah, there will be a difference between what I receive and you receive, but we're not going to be conscious of it. We're not, going to, we're not going to know about it. We're not going to be able to observe it or recognize it. We'll go through eternity without being able to see the difference. Or others might argue, yeah, there will be a tinge of sorrow there, but the happiness that we experience in heaven the, or in eternity, the happiness we experience in that time will be so great that it will drown out that sorrow. So we won't experience it. But if that's true, if that's how we're to understand this relationship, this eternal nature, that it's not perceptible or it doesn't matter, then why would rewards exist at all? If, in other words, if in eternity we're unable to really distinguish between good and better and best, then why would there be a good, better, and best at all if we can't distinguish it? Best in that situation no longer has any value. It's not really best if we can't distinguish it. And we can't simply say that it's a, it's a subjective reality of how much we enjoy something. John Piper argues that the, the reward, the distinction is, is how much we appreciate God's glory. 
that it's it's just a subjectiveness of of enjoying God's glory. But again, if it's subjective, then again it means nothing. There's no reason to distinguish these. And on top of that, can we even begin to talk about degrees of perfection? Does not the word perfection in and of itself mean it's all good? You can't talk about degrees, well, this is more perfect than that. That doesn't even make sense. And so there's a logical problem there. But again, the heart of our argument can't be just logic. The heart of our argument has to be Scripture. Because there are times when Scripture is beyond our logic. I'm not saying it's illogical, but it's beyond our logic. And so let's look at some of the passages that are, are used to talk about these rewards in heaven and, 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 and what they have to say. First of all, you have two parables of Jesus that are often drawn out as expression of reward. The parable of the talents and the parable of the pounds. One's in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. The other's in Luke 19, 11 through 27. And they essentially tell the same story. Jesus says that you have this master. And his master comes to his, his servants. And he says to them, I'm going away for a while. Okay, And so I'm giving you these talents, this, this gold. I'm giving you this, this money. Okay, And when I return, we're going to measure up the money that you have. And you'll receive your reward or punishment based upon that. Okay. And so the master goes away, and the, the three servants, there's, in both stories, there's three servants. They respond differently. One really goes after it. And, and he, he, gets, he gets a tenfold return on the, the money that was given to him. And one goes at it pretty good. He gets a five-fold return. But one is frightened and scared and, and just doesn't really understand the master at all, and so he buries the money. Doesn't do anything with it. And then the master returns, and each servant comes before him with what they have. Here I have a tenfold return. Here I have a five-fold return. I was scared, so I hid it. So here's your money back. Here's what you gave me. I'm just giving it back to you. And the master re rewards them. And so people will look at that and they'll say, this is evidence of a gradation of rewards. Because you got the tenfold guy, you got the fivefold guy, you got the, the guy who doesn't get anything. But I want you to, if you look at the details of the parable, especially in the reward section, what do you notice? What you notice is the first two, the ten and the fivefold guy, they get the exact same reward. And what's the reward? It's the commendation of the master. You have done well, my good and faithful servant. Both of them get that phrase. The one who hid things, he doesn't get a reward at all. In fact, what it says there is, you will go to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not a level of heaven. Okay. 
There, there's no way that's a, an expression of heaven. Because that's extreme grief. That's ex- extreme pain that they're experiencing there. So what is the parable of the, pound, the talents and the pounds? It's about salvation. It's about responsibility to what God has given us in this world. Are we responsible to it? Are we responding to him? Do we understand his purpose? Are we reaching out ministering? And whether you do that great or whether you do that just good, as long as you're responsive, you hear the words, my good and faithful servant. A second passage that's sometimes used to to highlight, or a group of passages, I should say, that's sometimes used to highlight the idea of rewards is the crowns. In Scripture, there are several places where it talks about us in in eternity, in this moment of judgment, being granted a crown. And what people have noticed is that there seem to be different descriptions of these crowns. And so some have used that. They've, They've argued that that then reflects, that reveals, again, a level of rewards. But if you look at the, the, the crowns, I would argue that it actually says just the opposite. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, you have the first mention of this. And here it highlights that the crown is the same as the prize in verses 4, 24 and 27, which is what? The victory. The crown is the victory. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, the second mention. Here you have parallelism used to to link hope and joy of eternal life with the crown. That that's what is being said. That the crown we're given is hope, it's joy in eternal life. 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown is given to all who long for his appearing. Again, the very heart of what it means to be a follower is to long for his appearing, is to long for that resurrection, is to long for that moment. So the crown of what? It's once again linked to being a believer. James 1.12, the crown of life. Goes to all those who have persevered. So when you look at these first four, it seems evident to me at least that the crown that's granted is an image, it's a picture of salvation itself. It's not a reward in addition to salvation. It is salvation. Now, that might cause some of you to say, but wait a minute, doesn't that make salvation a reward for our works? Doesn't that kind of mess up the whole by grace through faith idea that we're saved? And yes, if you want to define reward as, or or something, if you were to define a reward as something that you earned, it's something that's given to you because you did good, then yes, you could make a case that works play a role in our salvation. But we know from Scripture over and over and over again that our works do not play a role in our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. That is the, the clear, unequivocal teaching of Scripture on that subject. You get into heaven not because you worked or you're better than somebody or because you were a good person more than you were a bad person. You get into heaven by the grace of God, accepted by faith in Christ. That's how you get into heaven. But that then begs the question, then how can we call the crowns 
a picture of salvation as a reward. Doesn't that undercut that? Not if you define reward correctly. Reward can be defined as a satisfying return or result. In other words, it's not something you earned. It's something that happened in connection with the reality that you just experienced. Reward in Scripture can apply to salvation in the sense that it is return on perseverance. It is, it's, it's, it's just there at the end. It's, it's a recognition that salvation has taken place. Let me give you an example from a different sort of setting. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 through 27, you have a very famous story of Solomon with the two prostitutes. a very famous story that illustrates Solomon's wisdom. You had these two prostitutes, these two women. Both had had babies. One of their babies died. And so they were both fighting over the living baby. It's my baby. No, it's my baby. Because they both wanted the living baby. And they go before Solomon to determine whose baby it is. And Solomon says, bring me a sword. We'll cut the baby in half and we'll give part to each one of them. And the real mother steps forward and says, no, 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 just give the baby to her. And Solomon says, you're the real mother. Because you care more about that baby's life than having it yourself. You must be the real mother. So give the baby to her. And the language is what? The language is of reward. You have answered truthfully. You've answered correctly. Here is your reward. Now, when you look at the exchange and you look at how that plays out, why did she receive the reward? Because she earned it? Because she worked for it? Because she did something spectacular? No, she earned the reward because that's who she was already. She was the mother. Her actions just revealed it. Therefore, she received the baby. This is a similar way that, that heaven, that eternity will work. We receive the crown. We receive the reward, that this recognition not because we've earned it, but because it's an acknowledgement of who we were already in Christ. It's just the end result that involved those actions, that involved those things. We didn't earn the reward. Those actions revealed who we were, and the crown is the end result of that. The fifth crown is 1 Peter 5.4. It's talking about pastors. And it talks about the crown of glory that they would receive as pastors. And again, many have used this to try and distinguish the ministry from laity in terms of its outcome and so forth. But again, if you look at Peter's argument throughout the book, throughout 1 Peter, he has consistently identified glory with eternal life. Over and over and over again, they are synonyms. And so when he talks about this crown of glory, it's no different than the other crowns that are mentioned. It's just an acknowledgement that, again, they were faithful to who God made them. That is reflected in the eternal life they receive. It's not an additional one. It's not an additional acknowledgement. Take this further into the, the elders in Revelation who have their crowns and most would say those elders probably represent all the saints. But again, 
What do they do with those crowns? They lay them down, which suggests what? That throughout eternity, those crowns don't play a role in what they enjoy. So it seems to suggest to me that these crowns are, are a warning and encouragement to persevere. Hold on. And in the end, you'll get what you held on for. Not because you earned it by holding on, but because that's the natural course of events that takes place for those who persevere. And so with saying that, we begin to see the nature of a reward. We begin to see what Paul has in mind, what Scripture has in mind when it talks about the reward. And it seems to be over and over and over again, the reward we receive, the reward that, that we experience at that moment of judgment as Christians is the praise of God. It's God saying, good job. You see this in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. God will say, good and faithful servant. Matthew 24, 23. Enter into my kingdom. Talking to the sheep there, the sheep and goats. Enter into my kingdom, my good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, 31. Come, you who are what? Blessed. Who have the commendation of, God, of the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. 1 John 2.28, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, he may, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame that is coming. In other words, what? Our actions, the reward of our actions in, in, being, in persevering and, and, and so forth is that we stand before him in that moment, not ashamed because we didn't do what we should have, but we stand there receiving his commendation. You add into that text that point to the equality of all true believers, such as the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. In this particular parable, again, you have the master. The master is always Jesus. Yeah, I think I can safely say that. Master is always Jesus. And he goes out and he hires some some. Workers at the beginning of the day. He says, work throughout the day, and at the end of the day, this is what I'll pay you. He goes back out about midday, hires some more workers. Goes out very end of the day, hires some more workers. And at the end of the day, what? All those different groups of workers, all three, the ones who worked the eight-hour day, the ones who worked the four-hour day, and the ones who worked a half an hour. They all come before the pastor, or from the pastor, the master. They all come before the master. And what's it say? He gave them all the same pay. All the same pay. That parable seems to suggest whether you're there from the beginning or there just at the last moment, as Paul talks about here with the saved by, as by fire. It's all the same. 
to reward salvation. But if that's the point, why even discuss rewards at all? Why even discuss this judgment of Christians? What, what is it that Paul is trying to say? What is it Scripture is trying to say when it talks about this reward? What is it it's trying to encourage? If there's really no eternal outcome, there's really no eternal differentiation, what is it that Paul's getting at? What is it Scripture's getting at? I think there's three things, real quickly, that Paul's getting across here. I think, number one, the rewards have to do with a declaration of who we are. In other words, they are, they are a confirming, affirming expression from God of who we are. Not just as individuals, but as a corporate body. In verse 16 of our passage here, the verse we stopped just before, it says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? Now, a lot of times people will use this passage to talk about, well, therefore you treat the temple of God and, you know, you don't smoke, drink, or chew, all those sorts of things. And there are passages that allude to that, but that's not what Paul is saying here because the image of the temple of God that he uses here, the reference is not to an individual. He's not saying we individually are the temple of God in this passage. In this passage, he's saying you as a church are. If he were speaking in, in Texan, he'd say, All y'all are the temple. Okay? That's how he would express it. What's his point? His point is don't abuse the church, don't abuse your, your fellow believers because you're all part of the same temple. You knock down a wall of the temple, the temple itself is not going to stand. Each one of us is a part of the building of the church, a part of what God is accomplishing. That's his point. So the rewards are what? They're an expression of our identity, our community, our connection as a body of believers. But they also do have an impact on our individual status. They are public evidence brought forth as evidence of eternal status. That is, if there were a trial, could you really be convicted of being a Christian? And the whole point of this rewards and so forth is, yes, you're con convicted of being a Christian. There's evidence that supports that status. You see this in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. I'll just read verse 7. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Okay. John chapter 5, verses 24 through 29. I'll just read 29. Those who have done good, uh, good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, he may have or we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Passage we alluded to earlier. Well, all of these say what? That this judgment is a declaration of who we are. It is an expression. You are sons and daughters of God. This is acknowledgement. This is, this is your, your badge, if you will in terms of entering into that eternity of bliss that we'll look at next week. When you join a club, an organization, 
you typically get something that signifies that entrance. Some outward marker of who you are. This is what that is. This is what that judgment is. It's simply an outward expression of what Christ has done inwardly. It's God saying, everybody paying attention? This one's one of mine. And we know he's or she is one of mine because of these works. They, they, don't, they didn't make him one of mine. They demonstrated that they're one of mine. You understand what I'm saying? You understand the distinction there? They didn't make you a believer, but they demonstrated that you are a believer. A second reason I think this is these are here. These these phrases, these expressions are, is it's a call to self-examination. Self-examination. Not other examination. Self-examination. In other words, Paul is saying, look at your life. Look at what you're doing. Do they express that you are indeed a follower of Christ? Is that evident? Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The works that we do that have this eternal consequence, what Paul's calling us to here in, in 1 Corinthians 3 and so forth, they're there to help us right here, right now, to understand that we are believers. I don't know many Christians. I've heard some who say they've never doubted. I don't know many Christians who have never doubted their salvation. I think we all, at some point, have questions popping in our head. You know, did I really mean it when I prayed the prayer? You know, things are not going as well as I think they should. Not experiencing the power I once did. Am I really a believer? Those questions pop in. And generally what we will say, what a, a lot of people will say is, well, did you give your life to Christ? Just ask yourself that question. If you did, you're good. Go on. But that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible says, examine your life since you made that decision. Since you believe you made that decision, examine your life. Are you coming closer to Christ? Not are you perfect, but are you more aware of Him, more living for Him, more excited about Him, more in tune with Him overall than you were when you, that decision took place? Is there growth evident? Make your election sure. What? Understand that you are a believer. You don't have to worry about those things. Why? Because the work of Christ is manifested in how you're living and what you're experiencing. The third reason, and I would say this is the biggest, these, this judgment, this experience is a declaration of Jesus' worth. Not just not us focused primarily. It's Jesus' worth. When we started this several weeks ago, I asked the question, if you got to heaven, you entered into eternity, and you discovered at that moment that there were no streets of gold, there was no mansion in which you lived, 
there was, you know, you didn't know your family, those sorts of things. If you discovered those sorts of things, what you discovered was that heaven was just Jesus. Just him. Just an unfettered connection with him. Would that be enough? Would that be good enough for you in terms of your future hope? Just Jesus. Nothing else. And I ask that because I believe this passage, this whole idea of rewards and all of that comes down to that idea. What did I say the reward that Paul is talking about here is? It's Jesus' commendation. It's Him saying to us, good job. It's Him saying to us, you're one of mine. And so ultimately, what the end result of this whole passage is, is simply this. Jesus is the center of it all. Our hope, our rewards, our focus, everything we do in this life and in the life to come is centered on Him. And it's in that that we see the real value of eternity for right now. A lot of Christians are, are constantly thinking, man, I just can't wait for that. I just can't wait for that. And there's a sense in which that's biblical. But if that's your only focus, I can't wait for that out there, you've missed the point. Because the point of the walk of the believer is simply this. I can't wait for that out there because I'm enjoying so much of it right now too. I can't wait for that unfettered access to Jesus because the little bit I got now is amazing. I can't wait for there to be no barriers between me and Him. No shame between me and Him. I can't wait to experience the fullness of His glory then. Why? Because I am experiencing a part of His glory now, and it's wonderful. You see, our hope in eternity, when it's focused in the right place, when it's focused on Him, it has a major impact on how we live our life right now. How we experience the joys of life, how we experience the pain and the agony of life, how we experience just life. Life is good right now, not because my circumstances are necessarily amazing, but because my God is. And He's with me. And I can't wait for eternity when I get so much more of Him. That's what is at the heart of this declaration. Enter into peace, my good and faithful servant. You've done well. Your works revealed who you are, and in so doing, revealed who I am. Do your good works before man, not so that they honor you, but so they what? Praise your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. I praise you that you've granted us and blessed us so many, many ways. But more than all those blessings, Lord, I praise you and thank you for the blessing of you, of just being able to walk with you, to know you, to have those first tastes of what a relationship with you 
feels like is. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would draw us in your power, that you would help us to to see the value of our connection with you. God, I pray that if there's anyone here today who does not have the assurance of salvation, who does not know that they are yours, that you would lead them to reach out to someone after the service and to ask how they might have that assurance, that understanding. God, help us as believers to walk in a way that deals with life circumstances appropriately. Not because life is easy or good or made easy by you, but because you're in the midst of it. And whatever we face, if you're in the midst of it, it's good. God, we praise you and we thank you. We ask you to go with us. In Christ's name.